Hello and welcome to the IC Interviews. This week we're speaking with the economist and broadcaster Tim Harford, presenter of More or Less on BBC Radio 4 and the podcast Cautionary Tales, a Financial Times columnist and also the author of several books including The Undercover Economist, 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy and Messy. His latest book, How to Make the World Add Up, is about why, for all their occasional limitations, misuses and flaws, statistics can give us a better understanding of everything from ourselves to pandemics to our investment decisions. Tim, thanks so much for joining me. In your book, you describe what sounds like a gradual conversion from data scepticism and being a student of the way statistics can mislead us to an advocate for how statistics can actually help us to properly scrutinise and interpret the world. What happened? Well, I think the one of the big realizations was was during the Brexit referendum campaign. Uh, I was involved in uh, fact checking that campaign both both for the for the Financial Times and for the BBC, and realized that um, just the whole oh you can't you can't trust the experts, you can't believe the numbers. That whole kind of narrative was incredibly powerful in a corrosive way. And what had struck me as a sort of healthy scepticism, I came to realise, well, I've come to realise this over the years, but it really crystallised in that campaign. Um, it, was, it was a toxic cynicism. And I felt that somebody needed to do more to, to make the positive case for statistics, because of course they can be used to mislead, and they, and they are used to mislead, but they're a very powerful tool as well, and we shouldn't be reflexively rejecting them on a knee-jerk basis. Given that one of the features of recent years then is is that the truth is contested, we're still left with the question as to whether a statistic is any good, by which I suppose I mean useful or truthful. So how do we navigate that? Yeah, well, I mean that's in really what the whole book is about. And, and I offer uh, what I call 10 rules for thinking differently about numbers. But the rules aren't always technical rules. It's not always a piece of advice about mathematics. One of the other lessons from the Brexit referendum is that people are heavily influenced by what they want to believe, by their preconceptions, by their values, by what their friends think. And that's true of all of us. And so the, the very first rule that I advocate in the book is that you should notice your own emotional reaction to a number. If you're seeing a claim in front of you and you're immediately feeling uh, vindicated, triumphant, joyful, uh, or, or you're in denial, you're defensive, you think it can't be true, any of those emotions should be a warning sign to you. And although you know, I don't think we can ignore our emotions and I don't think we should ignore our emotions. We should certainly notice them. And, and if you notice that your feet, you're having these strong feelings to a claim, take note of that. You're already, I think, in a better position to take a little you know, deep breath, count to three, and start to think more clearly. Then the, the, the other pieces of advice, I won't go through all 10, but um, a lot of the advice is about trying to put a claim into context. So to ask, uh, what, what's actually meant by the claim? Very often we, we start chopping about numbers and adding and dividing and taking averages before we actually really understand what's being measured. Um, and a third piece of advice is to just ask, well, can I, can I compare this to something else that makes sense to me? Can I make comparisons 
that put a claim into context. Um, what's the same? What's the situation in another country, or what was the situation last year, or or ten years ago, or twenty years ago? Those sorts of um, basic pieces of curiosity, I think, really start to make sense uh, of the the claims that we see. And that that middle one, the one about um, understanding what's being measured, understanding definitions. I mean, I think that that rule was routinely violated in finance and was one of the one of many many reasons why we had the banking crisis of 2007 2008 we had very clever people performing very sophisticated mathematical operations on variables that they didn't really understand they were they were applying ideas like this has a certain risk but they didn't really know what the, what was meant by risk or what was meant by correlation or whether those whether the intuitive the intuitive meanings of what those what those concepts were actually added up to how this thing was going to behave in reality. I think you touched on it there, but one interesting psychological phenomenon which you unpack uh, in the book is this thing called bias dissimulation, which for investors is a particularly pertinent aspect of the way they approach their own investments. Can you talk about why we have a tendency to become more partisan on a viewpoint when we encounter newer evidence which may not agree with that? Now, bias dissimulation is is absolutely fascinating, and one of the one of the simplest examples of it is actually in in investment, uh, sometimes called the ostrich effect. So people check their portfolios more often when they think that stock markets are rising than when they think that stock markets are falling, and there's really no there's no investment strategy that. Can, can possibly make sense of that behavior. I mean, you should check your portfolio as often as you need to check it, but it doesn't shouldn't depend on whether you whether you've got this sort of uneasy sense that it's falling in value or whether you think it's rising in value. But that also gives a hint as to one of the things that's driving this process of bias assimilation, which is that you know emotions. There's certain pieces of news just make us feel very uncomfortable, and we we don't like to be made uncomfortable, and so we will we will sometimes actively reject or avoid information um, because it's just not something we want to hear. Um, so biased assimilation in general is the process of um, consciously or unconsciously filtering out certain kinds of information. And that could be, there are lots and lots of different ways in which that could happen. So it could be, I'm not going to check my portfolio. It could be about who you follow on Twitter, who you, who you follow on Facebook, which newspaper you choose to read, which TV channel uh, you choose to watch. But it's also a case um, whether you are subjecting a piece of information to undue scrutiny and you're really, really trying very hard to reject it, or whether you just wave it through and go, yeah, that's the kind of thing that seems about right to me. Um, and it, it's really, I mean, it's really striking how powerful it can be. One of the um, the strange side effects is that you can give people extra information and you would think if you give two people on who have polarized views about something, if you give them both more information, that will help them come together. They're getting more information. They should converge. But in fact, if they're processing that information in a, in a systematically biased way, extra information can actually drive them further apart. I thought this was really interesting, the way you discussed this in the book. And in light of someone you do mention very briefly toward the end, um, and that is Warren Buffett. He's once quoted as saying... You are neither right nor wrong because the crowd disagrees with you. You are right because your data and reasoning are right, which almost seems like a classic example of biased assimilation, but from 
someone whose track record in, in making sense of the world and making money from it is very good. Um, all of which invites the question, how investors might strike a balance between confidence, curiosity and a healthy scepticism in themselves that they may be subject to biases? Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's a huge topic, isn't it? So, I mean, one of the particular challenges that investors face is that there is a um, there is a short-term penalty and a long-term reward to contrarianism. Right? If, you, if you're doing exactly the opposite of what everyone else is doing, you're going to feel very bruised in the short term. But presumably, that's the long-term road to wealth, right? Because you're spotting value that other people are not are not spotting. So there's a, and, and I think that's not true of most other things that you don't, if you're trying to understand coronavirus, there are no points for um, being out of step with the crowd or being ahead of the crowd or, you know, and the virus is what the virus is. Um, so so the, for an investor, there are, there are all kinds of extra challenges. But a couple of pieces of advice that I think uh, are worth drawing from the book that are I apply to statistics in general, but I think are particularly apply to investment. One is uh, this that first piece of advice about being calm. So much of investment is is about understanding your own knee jerk reaction, your emotional reaction to to what's going on, uh, and if not ignoring it, at least. Uh, trying to prevent it from having an undue weight on what you do and the decisions you make. The second rule from the book that I think is important is just the um, being aware of the positions you've staked out and being willing to change your mind in light of uh, further information coming in. And that's really hard when you're an investor because um, – I mean, it's hard in general, but it's particularly hard when you're an investor because you've 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 invested in your point of view. You've got money on the line, and to change your mind is to is to recognise painfully that you've made the wrong decision and you've lost money. Um, and that's not a straightforward thing to do. I, I towards the end of the book, I tell the stories of of the parallel stories of Irving Fisher and John Maynard Keynes, these two great. Uh, titans of economics in the first half of the 20th century, both of whom were very enthusiastic investors, both of whom made very similar mistakes. But in the end, Keynes came out a millionaire and Fisher was ruined. And there are various differences between them, but the key difference was that Fisher really struggled to change his mind. And for Keynes, didn't seem to be a big deal at all. He was happy to change his mind. He made a virtue of it and, and as a result managed to extract himself from some very tricky investment situations i can't remember the exact quote but there's an anecdote in the book where he almost recognizes that he sees it as a game yeah win or lose this high stakes gambling amuses me is what he says to his dad while he's asking his dad for, for investment funds it's quite a prospectus isn't it yeah that's it but yeah but, but perversely that did help him i think because that recognition and he was a Monte Carlo gambler, and and he'd he'd made a lot of money and lost a lot of money when he was younger. Um, had all kinds of adventures, um, crossed crossed the Channel during the First World War to bid in an art auction in Paris with with the head of the British National Gallery in disguise. I mean, just extraordinary, extraordinary sort of swashbuckling stuff. But he, yeah, it was a game. He didn't take it personally. He knew that there were certain 
there were just certain facts about the world that you could not discern. There's this famous quote in the general theory um, about, about these matters. There is no scientific basis on which to assign any probability whatsoever. We simply do not know. And Fisher, I think, saw the world rather differently. He thought we could know. He thought if you thought hard enough and analyzed hard enough and got enough data, you could know. Uh, and um, I think he just put, I, I trust the numbers and I think we, you should take the numbers seriously. But in the end, you've got to recognize there are some things that are beyond your control and, and beyond the realm of statistics to, to tell you about. Absolutely. And I suppose until quantum computing is able to predict the future, statistics will only take us so far and will be able to tell us about the world, but not predict it. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the challenges that I discussed quite early on in the, the book is we, you are learning about the world from your personal experience. And the, your personal experience gives you this really rich, detailed, visceral view of what's going on. Um, and you're also learning about the world from the data, from the spreadsheets. And how do you get the best out of both of those perspectives? How do you combine them? What, what do you do when they seem to be in conflict? How do you resolve that conflict? And it's not a, not a straightforward problem. It's a run-of-the-mill observation that we are producing ever greater quantities of data about the world in which we live. But do ever greater quantities of data model our interpretative faculties? Do they model our... Hmm, that's, a good, that's a really good question. Um, they certainly can do. Um, this process of biased assimilation that we've discussed means that if you've got more data, you've got more data from which to cherry pick. I think the other risk is that we, uh, we hand over certain decisions to algorithms uh, that we don't really understand and that we we have too much faith in. I'm not an algo skeptic myself. I think algorithms can make certain kinds of decisions brilliantly, but there is a certain current of opinion that basically just says, oh, it's an algorithm, so it must be good. And you see that in the UK in uh, over the, the summer with the the algo shambles about uh, A-level and GCSE exam results. If you were to t take a step back and you would say, well, what did they actually do there? They cancelled all the exams, I think for, for a good reason. And then they were staring down the barrel of what, what on earth are we going to do now we cancelled the exams? And then someone said, oh, don't worry, we'll have an algorithm. An algorithm will sort it all out. And I think there's a certain sort of credulous kind of perspective that goes, oh, great, yeah, an algorithm, that sounds good. I don't really know how they work. But, but if you think about it, you go, there's no way that an algorithm can can hand out the correct grade to a student, or rather to hundreds of thousands of students, for exams they've never sat. How, how is that possible? There's no algorithm can do that. And what do you think is going to happen when students miss out on university places because they're told that the algorithm you know, has, has decided they didn't deserve that grade because somebody who was at the same school two years ago Mr. Grade. Um, I mean, it's extraordinary, but it shows the misplaced faith I think we sometimes have in algorithms. Um, and one of the arguments I make in the book is that we, we need to demand more of them. We need to demand more, uh, more oversight. We need to demand more information. I mean, the word transparency is sometimes used. I mean, it's easy to say transparency, but uh, uh, 
the idea that um, experts who understand might be able to scrutinize these algorithms and publish their results, or the idea that an algorithm that's making life or death decisions uh, might we might expect proof of efficacy. Now, we, we, we would expect a drug to prove itself or a vaccine to prove itself in a randomized trial. Well, where are the randomized trials for the algorithms? Um, so, yeah, there, there's a lot of potential there, but there's also a lot of potential fiascos. But we, and we haven't seen the last, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. I would probably put myself in the non-algo skeptic camp as well, but sometimes you do get the feeling that algorithms are kind of conflated with another thing you talk about in the book which is alchemy and the fact that the companies which specialize in these algorithms also happen to be the most powerful enterprises of our era we might not understand how they do what they do but because they have been so successful they at least offer some route to salvation yeah and and the and the reason i i talk about alchemy it's not just some nice kind of poetic turn of phrase it's that um there, there was a moment in our in our intellectual history where the same people, the same men, were conducting early scientific experiments and also doing alchemy. Uh, people like Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, and they're using the same methods. They're running experiments. They've got similar aims, um, trying to understand the structure of the universe, and yet alchemy makes no progress, and science becomes science. And the, the reason for the difference is because all the alchemy was done in secret. So nobody ever shared any results. Nobody ever said, oh, well, I've been trying to do this lead into gold thing. It doesn't seem to be working. Made no progress whatsoever. And, and, and even people assumed that these problems had been solved, but the solutions had been kept secret. So they were going to try and solve them themselves. And I think that's quite a close analogy for what's happening with a lot of the big data sets now and the algorithms that are the, that are analyzing those big data sets, there's a financial motive, just as there was with alchemy. That that motive requires you to keep what you're learning a secret. And because no one's sharing any information, there's no oversight, there's no learning. Um, of course, there's more progress in algorithms than there is in alchemy, but I think a lot less progress than we would see if there was more transparency. But there isn't, there isn't transparency, and there isn't transparency for the same reason that there wasn't transparency for alchemy, which is that people thought they'd make money. Tim, I wanted to finish by talking about data and statistics and two ways that they can impact ordinary investors. One is the question of data asymmetry and the fact that the financial market is full of different actors, some of whom are insiders, some are highly sophisticated and well-resourced, either with proprietary or, or non-public data. Um, and then the other is the prevalence of, of data and forecasts that are dominated by bias, either companies with an obvious kind of spin or sell-side analysts who may just reflect some version of this. In the book, you mentioned some data sources out there which can be useful tools for the under-resourced, ordinary investor in all of this. Can you talk about some of those? Well, the the data sources that I particularly highlight are are those produced by um, official statistics agencies, um, and they, there is a there's often a perception that those data are they're created for governments, they're created for important people, and historically they've often been released to senior politicians ahead of everybody else. You may remember. Uh, Donald Trump tweeting 
was kind of like how, how an amazing indica- uh, example of how you could actually wink during a tweet where he, he basically tweeted, oh, really looking forward to seeing the jobs numbers come out at whatever it was, half past eight. And yeah, about an hour later, the jobs numbers come out and they're fantastic. And of course, Trump had seen them and he was he was kind of winking to everyone, oh yeah, these are great numbers. Um, this is, I think, sometime in 2018. Um, but in the UK as well, uh, sometimes more than 100 people would get access to sensitive economic data, pre-release access, before the rest of us got it. And the idea there was, well, you know, in government needs to prepare its response and you need all these press officers to, to think about um, the appropriate response of the government. And this was all just a whole load of special pleading. And it was actually discovered that uh, markets were moving ahead of the official release of the data, but in line with what you would predict if you knew what the number was, with a I mean, clear indication that somebody somewhere was was performing insider trading off the basis of their privileged access to official statistics. So, so my friends at the Royal Statistical Society campaigned hard against that, and and now most of this stuff is is released to everybody at the same time because these official statistics, they are a resource paid for by the public purse and they are for everybody uh, to understand what's going on in the world and to hold our governments to account. Tim, thanks so much for your time. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm-hmm. 